Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, welcome to this uh, lecture, which is going to be out about green businesses. And as ever, I am very grateful to the Frank Jackson Foundation, who sponsor the Environmental Professorship. And uh, what I hope to do tonight is to provide you with an interesting and thought-provoking talk, but I also hope to avoid being sued by anyone who objects to what I'm going to the challenge for some of the businesses. It may be a bit uncomfortable for them. So, as um, any of you who browse along Britain's high streets or, or who drive along our motorways will notice, posters in shops and banners on trucks are increasingly trumpeting the environmental credentials of businesses. The slogans speak, uh, as these ones, as Marks and Spencer's there and Starbucks, um, as, uh, as uh, the, the slogans speak of being carbon neutral or environmentally friendly or using responsible sourcing for their raw materials. And importantly, I think, they've become very routine now, not as noteworthy as they were a few years ago when there were far fewer of them. And almost all the major UK supermarkets, for example, now have very strong environmental slogans and messages, at least about some of their products, whether it's fish or wood or meat or whatever. So some familiar ones here. The same messages are also being promoted by industries who work behind the scenes. So manufacturers Unilever, which is some of their products here, here they, you see um, compressed deodorants or de uh, compressed aerosol cans, uh, which take up less resource to produce, although, of course, they're not actually terribly environmentally friendly in total. And then um, engineering companies, for example, like Arup in, in, in London, uh, who I'll come back to later, and uh, WSP, who say here they're going to become carbon neutral by 2025. WSP, actually, the text, I don't know if you can see at the top right of the screen there, it says, we transform the UK's built environment and protect the natural environment, helping our clients find sustainable solutions and overcome environmental risks. The grammar actually isn't right there. It's made me wince. But um, uh, one gets the, the general message. And organisations like the Royal Mail and British Telecom are also part of this green vanguard, it seems. Now, chaired by um, uh, former Labour MP Joan Worley, uh, there is a very significant group of UK businesses known as the Aldersgate Group, who have been working together for a number of years to lobby the UK Parliament to maintain and enhance environmental standards. And that includes well-known companies such as IKEA, Kingfisher, Legal in General, Marks and Spencers, National Grid, Nestle, Siemens and Tesco. So they have tied their colours to the mast. But perhaps many other companies are lying about their efforts and intentions. Simultaneously, of course, we have frauds. We have diesel car emission frauds created by apparently reputable car manufacturers such as Volkswagen, who I'm sure many of you know will have tweaked their engine testing software uh, followed closely, actually, by, and uh, lest, lest we get uh, investigated by Volkswagen, I should say very hastily that they were followed very closely by Volvo, Renault, Jeep, Hyundai, Citroën, Mercedes, and Fiat, 
who all, who, all of whose cars emitted far higher levels of pollution under real-world driving conditions than their theoretical test data would suggest. Now, again, as you may know, Volkswagen had in, apparently intentionally programmed turbocharged direct-injection diesel engines to activate the controls on emissions only during the test cycles and not during normal running on the road. And in January 2017, last year, they pleaded guilty to disseminating this environmental misinformation and they are to pay $4.3 billion in penalties in the UK. And one or two people were jailed. That sounds to me like quite a, a price. And uh, despite the fact that in Europe, actually, the legal consequences were much smaller. But I think it's likely that despite the positive message they now convey to aspirant purchasers about recycling on, on the screen at the moment and environmental credibility, they were not alone in cheating. As you see here, it says, we make protection of our environment an integral part of our whole process, from product planning and development to the recovery of end-of-life vehicles. It's interesting here that they're, they're actually looking at the recycling element, not at the emission, uh, emissions of the cars specifically. We've also seen heavy truck manufacturers doing the same thing. Caterpillar, Renault and Volvo, for example, who also programmed their trucks to keep NOx emissions low, nitrous oxide gas particularly low, during the, cycle, the test cycles, whilst actually emitting up to three times as much of these polluting gases when on the road. Often, in fact, this was in the interests of demonstrating improved fuel efficiency. A difference I actually noted in my own car, uh, an Audi, when it went back to be adjusted following this, the outbreak of the VW scandal in, in 2016. After the adjustment, adjustment, it was using about 10% more fuel for a standard journey and presumably emitting more carbon dioxide as a result. The level of public disbelief in human-induced climate change is falling, I think, the disbelief, though naturally there remain uncertainties. 200,000 uh, fewer diesel cars were sold in the UK in 2017 compared to the previous year, which perhaps reflects increasing public awareness of environmental issues and the demonisation of diesel in particular. As you see here, their message, uh, this is a recent message on the screen at the moment, it refers not to greenhouse gases, uh, their production apparently protects our world. Now, I just flag up there, whose world is it that's being protected, of course? Perhaps it's Volkswagen's world. Some industries would appear today to be inherently unsustainable in environmental terms. For example, despite the oil industry be apparently and I quote from the prep from press reports, beginning a journey towards setting up an investment fund for improved energy efficiency, which was in the media last year, it generates, generally generates more income by selling more oil, which in turn will generate more greenhouse gas when burnt. If we step back to the 1990s, the fossil fuel environmental messages were clear. And I'm going to show you a little 
video clip here from the 1990s. Because it's a 1990s video, it's a bit grainy, uh, but it's a video from Chevron, a US oil company, very short video, um, talking about their attitude to environmental protection. Uh, remember, it's 1990. In a den high in Montana's Blackfeet country, a grizzly settles for a long winter's nap. Unaware that down below, people with motors and machinery will explore for oil through deep winter. But before she wakes, the people will be gone. The explored land will be replanted so it will soon look as if no one had ever been there. Do people sometimes work through the winter so nature can have spring all to herself? People do. So, what's going on there, if you can hear through the crackle, is that Chevron claimed to be protecting mountain wilderness areas and local bears by drilling very quietly for oil in the valleys. Um, and perhaps we might be sceptical. In fact, we're even more sceptical than we might, be, might otherwise have been. One of, the, one of the young men who sorts out the videos for this told me he thought the bear was animatronic, not actually a real bear at all. But um, anyway, okay, so that's... that's Chevron in the 1990s. Now, if we switch to today, um, figures on investment by Shell and BP, for instance, also speak for themselves. This, uh, these are some quotes here on the, on the left. Um, Shell's uh, position on new energies, and on the right, their expenditure, their, their investment expenditure. They seem, at the moment, to have put only about 0.7% of their investment into renewables, despite making some environmental claims. For example, they are establishing a portfolio to build on established strength in low-carbon biofuels, hydrogen, and smart customer solutions, as well as in solar and, and wind energy. Um, but if you look at the quote on the bottom right, in red there, of course, they can't be expected to act against their environmental, their economic interests, I beg your pardon, and nor those of their shareholders. As it says there, I can't invest 15 to 20 billion in solar and wind, which is quite often what people somehow hope us to do, and also still, uh, still at the same time pay a dividend to the shareholders. But they are, as it says there, supporting electric car charging networks. If we go to BP, this is very recent data from BP, uh, BP seems to have moved a little further, um, with about 3% of its current uh, investment going into non-fossil fuel alternatives. These are actually the figures there are 2016, but the, the quotes on the left are 2018. Um, the latest ones are not going to be very different, I think. They say that um, their, their goal of achieving... I think I've got that on a quote, yes. Our goal of achieving no damage to the environment guides our actions. We consider local conditions when determining issues, uh, which issues would benefit from the greatest focus. And, um, in fact, it's interesting. Of course, that's true, I'm sure. And uh, you'll see there that they, they aspire to be a good corporate citizen and part of the solution to climate change. But they also remind us that they provide billions in tax revenues. Uh, they support public services and jobs and so on. So, some interesting, um, some interesting perspectives there. If you just go back to that one at the bottom, on the left here, you'll see that they're actually investing a little bit of money into um, carbon targets, including one for methane, 
and um, that should be announced next month. But they also were, at least, looking at carbon capture and storage, which, of course, would be very beneficial to them in continuing oil production if that could be made to work. Um, they also expressed surprise about the speed at which, at which the, um, the industry is changing. Now, you will, at this stage, obviously need to draw some of your own conclusions about whether these messages are greenwash or not. Greenwash being defined as marketing being deceptively used to promote a perception that somebody's products or, or aims or policies are environmentally friendly. Certainly, BP is looking at climate change questions, perhaps being driven away from business as usual by a growing public mood for disinvestment in fossil fuels. Some products certainly are greenwashed, shouting very loudly about being environmentally sensitive when in reality they are not. This is my own particular bugbear, patio heaters. Now, it, here's a wonderful advertisement for a make of patio heater that is apparently based on infrared shortwave radiation, which according to its advertising is up to 89%, up to 89% more efficient than gas heaters at heating presumably the western arm of the galaxy, because that's what it's heating, as well as those restaurant patrons who want to smoke and have to be kept warm whilst lounging outside in t-shirts. Now, the point about this is this is not a sustainable product, at least in relation to greenhouse gas generation, however it is sold, and whatever logos appear on the website. It's a nice one saying it's eco, telling us three times that it's eco-friendly. It's Danish. Not that that's particularly significant, probably. So before we get into the details of some of the interesting greenwash and fake news stories, I need to reflect for a minute on the nature of business and what the term covers. When we think of the impact of business on the environment, we might think first of manufacturing industry, manufacturing of goods that requires resources such as metals, minerals, plastics, biological products, and so on. Now, in the UK, despite assertions to the contrary, we remain a major industrial force in this context. We're seventh in terms of the commercial value of our output in 2016 at 360 billion uh, pounds. Um, now, I, I will just show, I couldn't resist putting this next one in. I'm sorry, this is the, the British self-deprecating thing. In fact, last year we, were, we weren't seventh, we were sixth. We've been overtaken by South Korea, which is kind of, feels kind of strange, actually. But um, um, we're not only making things, of course, but we're generating gross domestic product by selling services, and to a lesser extent, engaging in agriculture. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting map. It just shows you, uh, using three different colours, where the balance of uh, gross domestic product comes from in different countries. So the greener the colour, the more, the more proportion of gross domestic product comes from agriculture. And the bluer, like most of the UK, it's services, and the red is industry. So what we see here in these, uh, these three elements is that the service sector dominates in the UK. Um, in the, um, the, the reddish tones you see in, in places like China, and uh, 
the uh, minority of countries in Africa and Southeast Asia where agricultural production dominates the economy, and they're very small economies for the most part. So where an area has an equal balance, there are more purple tones. And uh, so some of Eastern Europe, for example, has a, purp a purplish tone. I think actually um, Germany as well. So all of those sectors of business, important thing is all of those sectors of business are relevant to our consideration here. And all of them are generating green messages to a greater ex or lesser extent now to highlight their environmental credentials. Um, now, there are green marketing scans, scams and dubious data uses. And for some people, of course, there are scientific hoaxes Lies suggesting, for example, that climate change is a fiction thought up by scientists who are keen to secure more research fund funding, which is what happened uh, in the University of East Anglia a few years ago. Or there are industries keen for us to buy new low-carbon products, which actually require unnecessary changes to lifestyles, which is, again, a position held by uh, uh, some observers. We've also had greenwash concerning such things as biodegradable plastic, which actually isn't. It just breaks down into very small particles. And, and a fashion industry that claims to be sustainable while selling more and more clothes every year. And then there's fake news, and there's a new emphasis on what appears to be a post-truth society, where if something is repeated often enough, people will end up either believing it or not caring or possibly even admiring the originator of the fact for their tenacity in the face of suggestions to the contrary. In fact, the latest figures for the UK public do suggest that industries may need to be careful how they behave in future because a majority of the, of the public now say that they do want to make a positive difference to the environment by making changes to their own lifestyles. I, um, I should say here that um, this is uh, uh, my thanks here to comparethemarket.com, for whom I did a piece of work for them last week. And this data hasn't yet been published. It will come out later this week. There's a press release later this week. They polled 2,000 British people, uh, uh, demographically selected and so on, for age, gender, distribution across the UK. And if you look at the diagram here, um, the majority of people were... Um, over in the category of wanting to make some difference, either strongly agreeing in blue or agreeing in red, and then or, or being neutral in green. So there's a very strong push towards people saying, saying that they want to make a difference. And then further questions. Do you think you could do more to help the state? Do you personally could do more, and specifically to reduce their carbon footprint? And again, people are saying, yes, they could do more. Now, of course, there's two ways of interpreting that. One says, well, I'm doing nothing now. I could do more. But the, the other part of it actually is an indication that people are interested in moving. And there are relatively few people today saying, no, that they're not interested. Um, there's quite a shift, actually, from the position a few years ago. Uh, this is a survey that was done in 2007. And if you just look at the bottom right-hand corner, 75%, this was in, in relation to um, global warming, as it was called then, but 75% of the population um, were kind of concerned, but they challenged to see how anything they did would make any difference. 
Now, that is changing. There's been quite a, quite a shift from 2007 uh, over the following decade. Um, the comparethemarket.com survey also asked people what they thought would make the greatest difference, what would have the greatest environmental impact. And the, the text is probably a little small for you to see here, but um, what it showed was the most favoured actions, environmental actions, were actually um, quite, uh, quite rational. So people said, for example, that they were, going, they were waste conscious, um, they were reducing their uses of plastics and packaging, which is something that's suddenly hit the headlines in the last few weeks, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, eating less meat, driving less, and home energy efficiency. So those are all perfectly rational, even scientifically-based uh, approaches. But, of course, they are ones that may cause car manufacturers, energy companies, and butchers to feel somewhat under threat, particularly that eating less meat one, uh, which is the top bar, uh, there's quite a number of people saying they will do that. They could only choose one so, uh, of these choices, so uh, um, the percentages are small, but the emphasis is clear. Um, plastic packaging is, as I said, uh, is something that's risen up the agenda very, very recently in the last, uh, even the last couple of months. And I think if we went back um, beyond last Christmas, for example, we wouldn't have seen that uh, those plastics-related things in the middle of the diagram there, quite so strongly. Okay, now, it's not my uh, intention tonight to harangue various businesses about their environmental credentials or to preach about the rampant impact of uncontrolled capitalism, for which, of course, we are almost all responsible as consumers, me with my diesel car, for example. But rather, what I want to do is I want to look at how these environmental messages come about and perhaps how we can recognise the worst examples of greenwash, the worst fake examples. And then to say a little bit about whether industry and commerce are now genuinely moving in new directions. Have we gone through some kind of industrial transition where we're now living in a more accountable and environmentally friendly post-industrial world? It's, to my mind at least, very important because of climate change uh, shifts and other implications such as um, the loss of biodiversity, ecosystem changes, plastics and toxic contamination and air pollution, amongst other things, all things which I've spoken about in uh, other Gresham lectures. So perhaps other things are also happening. Businesses may try to adjust our view of reality in order to promote their interests and those of their shareholders. Now, on the screen here, I've listed some of the typical types of greenwash, which, relate, uh, which range from outright lying, to which I'll come back later, through lack of, as it says there, no proof, claims that can't be substantiated because there isn't any information or you can't get hold of the information, or claims that are very vague, so poorly defined that the real meaning isn't, is open to misinterpretation, or claims that are irrelevant. The truth might be uh, as telling us a truth about a product which is actually unimportant or un unhelpful. Um, one of the ones I would quote uh, here is something like clean coal, which was often trumpeted by um, American um, industrialists. I mean, it's a, to me, it's almost an oxymoron, but it's, it might be clean because you've taken the sulphur dioxide out of it, 
um, out of the emissions, but it's actually putting a hell of a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So the sulfur dioxide isn't entirely irrelevant, but it's uh, certainly not the main characteristic of coal, clean or otherwise. Um, here's a few more greenwash characteristics. So we might have um, false labels. So words or images that give some impression that there's some kind of third-party endorsement. If you remember the, 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 the one I showed you about the patio heater, it's three times it tells us it's eco-friendly in some sort of stamp that appears on the packaging. Um, or some kind of hidden trade-off where something is green because it's, they're considering some narrow element, some very tiny element, whereas actually there are other much more important environmental issues. Or a third one on this screen that says, well, it's the truth within that product category. This one is better than this one, but actually the whole lot are terrible for the environment. And we've got three more here, been added uh, by uh, another researcher, somebody called Gillespie, uh, which says, just being not credible, touting the environmentally friendly attributes of a dangerous product. And in one of my previous talks, I showed packaging for organic cigarettes, for example. Um, I think there was actually, there was actually organic and dye-free um, cigarette papers as well. Which, you know, great. Um, gobbledygook, uh, not my words, Gillespie's words, using information that the average person can't understand or can't confirm. And then evocative pictures. I haven't actually seen the one to which he was referring, flowers, coming out of the exhaust pipe of a car, but you can imagine it in your mind, I think. So those are, those are different kinds of, of indicators of greenwash. Now, what I want to do here, this is the bit where I risk, I'm risking being sued, and um, I'll start off with... You'll notice I've put a question mark, and if I'd left the question mark off, I think I'd be more open to being sued. Greenwash stories. OK, so there's no doubt that some business does damage the environment. So here's the Aral Sea in Central Asia. Uh, between 1989 and 2009, it's shrinking very, very quickly. Now, 30 years ago, it had, as you see in the image on the left, 1989, it had water, standing water, dark colour there, over a substantial area. These are satellite images. And um, it was recorded as a spectacular scene where the Russian Navy actually practised their various arts and sciences rather than in Salisbury, I think. Um, however, by 2003, you can see it was starting to shrink and it was getting shallower and the areas around the margin of the lake were also getting rather saline. And by 2009, it had almost gone and there were derelict boats permanently beached on the shores and the residual water, that water that was left, was a, a, a very briny and toxic fluid, actually full of um, uh, very concentrated um, um, chemicals, weed killers and so on. And it had very damaging ecological and health consequences for people who lived nearby because the dust was taken up by the air and people inhaled it. Now, you may know what the cause of this was. It was extraction of water for cotton growing to feed an apparently insatiable desire for clothes in the West. This is the latest image in 2017, and there's little change. Um, there's a nice picture there of the, what it used to look like in 1848, a, a painting. Um, so 
Little change. Processing the cotton also produces waste products from the cleaning and dyeing processes that contaminate local watercourses. And um, I show you this picture here with slight tongue-in-cheek because um, it's the cleaning and dyeing that contaminates the water. And this image, which is apparently taken in Uzbekistan, um, it appears on a website for, um, called Real Self-Sufficiency, but the picture is not actually attributed. So one is invited to assume that it's uh, the result of cotton waste. Uh, I wonder what those chimney stacks at the back are. They might not be cotton, uh, a cotton um, uh, business. It might be a lie, the image itself. But even if that's true, cotton is a very damaging but so-called natural product. Its cultivation requires huge volumes of water, far greater than can naturally be replenished in the desert areas around the Aral Sea. Now, this is analysis that was done by our government's department in 2010, and you can see, if, particularly, you should, I should draw your attention, first of all, that the, the um, axis on the left is rather odd. It's kind of upside down. So it's got, it's got an arrow going down that says decreasing environmental impact, but the bad stuff is at the top of the picture. So it's analysed five different characteristics, energy use, water use, greenhouse gases, wastewater, and land use. And you can see there in that second water use column that cotton, as we've seen from the Aral Sea, is very, very high in its environmental impact. And it takes a lot of land, which is what you can see on the right-hand side as well. Um, it's, um, it's thirsty, it's space and energy consuming, and it also emits a fair amount of greenhouse gas during its growth, collection, processing and weaving. Now, interestingly, you'll note that um, wool in terms of greenhouse gases is actually... Pretty, uh, sorry, wool in terms of wastewater is actually pretty high. If you see the last but one column there. So wool, which, again, another natural product that we might think is uh, rather, rather good for us and good for the environment, is, is not uh, um, without its problems too. Conversely, some of the modern artificial fibres are better on some parameters, particularly water use. So at the bottom, polyester, for example, is at the bottom of the column on water use. It's a very small environmental impact. Farming is, of course, an industry. I should just uh, explain, of course, that this analysis was done before the recent studies of microplastics particles revealed that the loss of polyester fibres that break down very slowly in water had been revealed. And uh, if we were to put another column on this, again, we'd get a different impression. The point about this is that to understand the use of cotton, we have to produce something called a full life cycle analysis. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this because doing them is very tedious, but the <sighs> diagram here shows a kind of introductory one which identifies the main impacts of cotton on the natural environment. And they are serious. And it takes into account the opportunities for reuse, recycling, and incineration of cotton when you've finished with the clothes. Okay, so various things there. You see their production phase, industrial, consumer, and recycling. So we've got a life cycle analysis. But cotton production, particularly, is bad news. Now, some companies, of course, are trying to work to reduce these adverse impacts. And there are a plethora of certification schemes for cotton. 
the logos for some of which I've got on the screen here. Most people, of course, me, you in this room, will not know whether any of these have value in identifying anything that is really environmentally better. But on our UK high streets, clothing companies are suggesting that they use responsible sourcing for their cotton. So here's Primark. Now, again, their website, I'm sure the print is very small, but they use responsible sourcing, it says. They particularly mention cotton in there, and they include in their analysis, their environmental statement, if you like, uh, other things they do to, do, to, do, do to improve their performance, like using brown paper bags, which actually I don't think I've ever seen. Um, and they donate um, samples to clothing charities, which, of course, all seems very worthy and laudable. Now, another UK clothing and home products company, Next, which we must all know, I'm sure, also tell, tells us in its corporate responsibility statement that it recognises its environmental obligations. Now, that's at the bottom left. So I'll, just, um, I'll highlight that in a second, but you can see it's got a lot on here about modern slavery and carrier bag charging and things, carrier bag, bo both of those things actually being required by law for them to do something. But it has a statement about the environment there. And what it says is that it recognises it has a responsibility and an obligation to work to reduce the direct impact of its business operations on the natural environment, both now and in the future. And there's a, quite a big focus on reducing emissions, its carbon footprint, doesn't say anything about water, of course. It goes on, and it's quite a substantial environmental statement to, to highlight a whole raft of things that it is doing. Um, it says it's signed up to um, the government's uh, initiative on waste, called the RAP initiative. It's a signatory to Sustainable Clothing Action Plan. It's a plan. It's not actually action. It's a plan for action. And it talks about responsible sourcing and it's recycling its coat hangers. And um, at the bottom, which is the only thing it says about water, actually, is that in new shops it's putting spray taps in. OK, little being said about water use in the production of the raw materials. But on the whole, it's looking pretty positive. Now, clothing is a crucial part of the environmental impact of all of us. I've bought clothing in Next when I can fit into it, and perhaps you, you have too. Um, but more recently, uh, an external analysis of cotton-using textile retailers was undertaken, 2017, in conjunction with WWF, who I would say have pretty good environmental credentials. And what they did was they examined a number of retailers to see whether any were making good progress with cotton. And, uh, and who was lagging behind. Now, you may get ahead of me at this point, but uh, the results showed that, and there were a, a number of things that they looked at. They looked at environmental policy, whether the recommendations of those policies had actually been implemented, and they looked at the traceability of, of, of um, raw materials. And some retailers had made good pro progress and perhaps deserved their green credentials. So at the top of the list here, you can see IKEA 
Marks and Spencers and sadly the now defunct CNA, I don't think this was a cause of their demise, but um, they had, if you like, first-class marks. If you look um, towards the bottom, at Benetton, we're only just starting the journey and well down the list, so in that red category. Now, if we get the full list, you may well be ahead of me here, where do we see next? Well, all their environmental statements notwithstanding, they appear almost off the bottom of the scale alongside Rolf Lauren and the US giant J.C. Penney. It's rather surprising, of course, given their statements. And one wonders, of course, if those statements were merely greenwash. I have no reason to believe that um, Next is the victim of any subterfuge or lack of independence by the researchers. Now, of course, waste and... Uh, uh, um, waste, the waste element in particular is something for which businesses are not the only culprits. We buy products, we dispose of them very readily, and um, those waste products associated with manufacturing and the consumption of various sorts, including cotton and uh, clothing, is uh, so significant that we've now, uh, if, you, if you're not aware of this already, we now have a newly approved by the International Commission on Stratigraphy geological layer called the Anthropocene. It's good to drop into your pub conversation. It includes, the Anthropocene includes plastics, disposable sanitary products, and all the rest of it. It represents a situation where human agency, the definition is human agency, is affecting the planet more than natural forces. And industry and households are almost equally to blame. So we can't blame it all. We can't blame all of this on industry. If you look at the recent DEFRA statistics, leave the green layer. It says that sounds rather a, uh, an, uh, an inappropriate invitation to do that, but it's mostly construction stuff. But if you look at the grey layer, the grey section of the pie, which is um, commercial and industrial waste, it's 14% of all of our waste and households, 14%. So industry is not the only culprit there. And it's worth saying, too, that... Um, there are some problems. Recycling is rising a bit, but not much. Okay, um, and this diagram too shows in the, in the blue blocks on the left that business, uh, conventionally described, is only responsible 17, for 17% of greenhouse gas emissions and residential is 14. Now, of course, it depends how you cut the thing up. Um, business is also using energy, and so energy suppliers are coming out uh, as large emitters, as is transport, which again is used by industry and, and houses. So we're all responsible. Okay, now that cotton example is one where I think it's quite easy to see that people are greenwashing. Let me take another one. This is the one I referred to earlier, the recent surge in attention being given to plastic particles in the ocean, fostered by Sir David Attenborough's excellent series and reflected in the compare the market dot figures which dot com figures which I showed you earlier about public concern. The pictures are actually appalling with plastic bottles a major culprit for the damage. Plastic bottles are now found everywhere, even on shore the shores of Antarctica. Um, the company 
I want to focus on, oh yes, maybe 13 million tonnes of plastics. This is Britain's oceans, Britain's seas. That's uh, the figure leaking into the oceans. Now, Coca-Cola produces also a lot of information about its environmental performance, including a very extensive sustainability statement. And um, they say one of their objectives is to reduce CO2 emissions of the drink in your hand by 25%. It will work to reduce greenhouse gases across the value chain, blah, 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 manufacturing, blah, 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 all, all sorts of things. Very positive statement. But if you look again, in the same way as I looked at Shell and BP, if you look at their statements and their performance, there's a mismatch. They note, for example, that on the left, in green, all their bottles and cans in the UK have been recyclable since 2012. That doesn't mean they actually are recycled. It just means they could be. Um, they note that um, they are committed to increasing the amount of recycled plastic in each bottle from 25% to 50% in a couple of years' time. And there's some other statements about, about uh, their performance as well. But if you look on the right-hand side, they are producing 3,400 plastic bottles a second globally. That's an awful lot of plastic. And it's actually going up, not down. And um, that plastic bottles, those plastic bottles are more than half of their packaging um, amount. And it's, again, that, those plastic bottles are going up. And the important point is only 7% of the ones collected, even of the ones collected, are actually turned into new bottles. And bottles could be made today of wholly recycled plastic, but it would cost the company quite a bit of money. So is the environmental media material from Coca-Cola just greenwash? Indeed, I quite like Coca-Cola myself, and I quite frequently buy and drink it. Now, these things are very difficult to disentangle. One attempt to explore the issue of greenwash in more detail was done by a couple of academics last year, two Harvard researchers, uh, Supran and Oreskes. They investigated ExxonMobil, and they did it in a very interesting way. They analysed the text of 187 documents from the company, both internal to the company and external. I don't actually know how they got hold of them. But um, anyway, they, they looked at statements made, particularly about climate change. So they read things like advertisements, internal memos of the company, something called advertorial. Any of you that work in anything to do with publishing or anything related will know that companies sometimes pay for pages. The Guardian is doing this now in an attempt to bolster its finances, you'll see paid-for supplements in The Guardian. That's called advertorial. Uh, and other material was analysed as well. Now, the thing is, they, they looked at the position that was expressed in each of these documents on climate change as whether the document said it's real, it's human-induced, it's serious, or it's solvable. So there are four things there. Is climate change real? Is it human-induced? Is it serious and is it solvable? Now, in fact, those four divisions don't matter because they found the same thing in every case. What they found 
after a very rigorous statistical analysis, was as the documents became more publicly accessible, they increasingly promoted doubt about climate change. So if you look at the, on the left-hand side there, the pink column there, so of scientists employed by ExxonMobil producing peer-refereed papers, 83% of them said it was human-induced, it did exist, and it was solvable. And in fact, even 80% of the internal co company documents said the same thing. But when it got to things being produced outside the company, it dropped. So only 12% of the advertorial in magazines said that it was solvable. 81% said it was uncertain and that little could be done about it. Now, one might say here that ExxonMobil clearly appeared to be deliberately misleading the public by not saying the same thing internally and externally. It advanced the science of climate change through its academic work, but promoted doubts in the minds of readers in the general public. That surely has to be business greenwash. Now, finally, very quick example here from a company specifically working in an environmental domain and who I know very well. Uh, Thames Water, as all water companies, has a strong environmental message. Indeed, those of you that uh, are here in the, in the room in, in Barnard's Inn uh, this evening probably are recipients of Thames Water daily. Um, and they put out very strong environmental messages, including on their invoices. It's also an industry that's regulated by the Environment Agency and it's legally bound to meet various environmental targets in relation to water quality in rivers and um, into which it discharges treated human wastes. Now, here you see their environmental objectives or uh, an introduction to them. So it, it, they say their high-level environmental objectives guide their overall approach to good business management, which is fundamental to the business and important to all of us. And it says natural resources and the environment are vital. We rely on them. However, what happened? Well, earlier this month, they were just fined, along with several other water companies, so Thames not alone here, fined uh, approaching a million pounds for flouting environmental rules in a five-month period up to January this year. Now, how has this happened? Well, is it greenwash? Do they simply say one thing and do another when it suits their business? Well, let's go back to those greenwash characteristics. I showed, I showed them earlier, and I think we might usefully reflect on them again. The examples I took, and I could have taken hundreds of others, there are a variety of um, elements. There are mismatches, there are lies, there are some vagueness, there are lesser of two evils, fewer of those actually in, um, in, uh, in the examples here. Uh, and uh, certainly, if you look at these, there are also, there are certainly some false labels. There are um, certainly two, some, there's some gobbledygook, and there are one or two, certainly in the, in the um, environmental statements, some very evocative pictures uh, of what is going on. Now, of course... There could be um, other elements here. I want to show you one or two things, when, which we, further things we might consider when we're, we are looking at these individuals 
and companies who make variously debatable green claims. Basically, they could be lying or denying something for personal or corporate gain. That's obvious. However, they could have been some kind of actual error of judgment or an accident, and one can't help thinking about Thames Water. Perhaps that was not a deliberate attempt to greenwash what they routinely do, but it was an accident. There are um, some, some people telling only part of the truth in those examples. The bears in the, in the snow, for example. Um, there are um, lies being told by individuals because it suits the mindset better than some alternative. You approach it, you approach coal thinking coal is a good thing. I've been brought up with coal. I like it. That's my mindset. And we don't actually perhaps even see it as lying to say coal is a good thing. Um, or perhaps some people are lying because they're afraid to confront reality. Climate change is very disturbing to some people, so perhaps they don't want to confront it. Too difficult, perhaps, in denial, too complex to understand. Or perhaps people hold two different views in their heads at the same time. We, talk, we call, call this cognitive dissonance. Uh, dissonance. I like Coca-Cola myself, but I'm aware that what's happening to those plastic bottles is not a good thing. Um, and there are some other things as well. Running, I won't go through all of them, but being economical with the truth, like lying about lying, is another thing. Um, okay, so these are all ways of alternative facts. They're all ways of interpreting greenwash, but they're not all company ways. Some of them are more specific to individuals who are in companies or who work with companies. And on the other hand, there are some very positive business actions. Um, Visa and some others as well, targeting a transition to 100% renewables. I don't actually know how that pans out, because they're mostly, um, I think most of what they do is electronic, so where they get their electricity supplies from, presumably, is what they're talking about in the servers they have, um, they use all over the world. Um, but here's a good one, Lego. Now, I love Lego. I don't know about the rest of you. My kids loved Lego, and they announced this month, earlier this month, that they are now making some elements... They used to be bricks in, when I had them, but uh, they're now making them from plant-based plastic made of sugar cane. Okay? And um, here's the new ones. They are called Sustainable Lego Botanicals. It's like the gin, isn't it? Botanicals. Um, and it says there, a great step in our ambitious commitment of making all Lego bricks using sustainable materials, their um, vice president said. There is a bit of a problem because at the moment that's only 1% of the total amount of plastic that Lego produce. So it's a nice message, it's a kind of good aspiration, but they haven't actually gone very far yet. Um, Unilever, again, I could run through lots of these, I'm not going to go through them all in detail. Unilever have actually gone quite a long way. You may think that the, the picture I showed earlier of the um, aerosol cans reduced in size, but still aerosol cans is problematic, and I do too, but they've gone quite a long way uh, towards making products less resource-intensive and have a quite a, a good set of targets, actually, about all sorts of things, as do Arup, um, again, not far from here, 
company. They refer here, and this is the, uh, really the last major point I want to make, they talk here, Arup, about the UN Sustainable <coughs> Development Goals, which we are now using as reference points within our projects. And they're doing it because it makes good business sense. If you see here, uh, there's a quote here uh, saying that... Um, um, sustainability is about not only about environmental, social and economic benefits, but also about ensuring future success because they're going to need to be there, they want to be there in the future. Now, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals include 17 goals, and I don't know how many people here uh, or, or watching the, uh, the video subsequently or live tonight actually know what I shouldn't think anybody could quote all 17 of them. 17 is far too many for us to relate to. But there are four, or three or four, that relate specifically to business. And decent work and economic growth is one of them, promoting, as it says here, inclusive and sustainable growth. There is building resilient infrastructure and promoting sustainable industrialisation and fostering innovation, okay, that's another one. There's one here on responsible consumption and production, again, which talks about doing more and better with less. Okay, now all of those are directly relevant to businesses. And they fit together in this sort of way. The, the, the um, point about this is that the, the, 17, um, the 17 goals, you can arrange them, as, a, 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 as you see here, in layers... So at the bottom, you've got the biosphere, then you've got things about society, and then at the top, you've got some of those, uh, three at least, of those four things that industry and business relate to uh, in the economy. But the point is that you actually have to get the foundation of this right as well, not just the top. So it's no good just tweaking around with whether something is sustainable in a business context. It has to be actually sustaining the biosphere as well. And I wanted to end, really, by saying that this is perhaps the most appropriate set of metrics for businesses to use and for us to evaluate greenwash. Are they hitting those kind of targets? And there are specific numerical targets associated with some of those things. Now, some people have, and this I thought was great. It's um, earlier this week, actually, or last week, a group of major UK retailers have committed to tackling societal issues by using the UN Sustainable Development Goals as a framework, which is, which is great. Now, this is not a new problem. That's what I wanted to end with, really. There's a quote here from a French philosopher, actually, uh, in 1821, talking about, um, in this case, cutting forests forest being cut down by large-scale industries. And he says, one might as well decree that tigers should become docile and turn away from the blood. You can't stop them doing it. That's what he's saying. But we can be aware of it, I think, about a greenwash. And the final picture I want to put up with you to leave you with is I gave you a framework to think about lies, of false truths and so on. And um, the Royal Society, which have, of course, long-standing links with Gresham, got there first, even before my last, uh, my French philosopher, by saying, take nobody's word for it in 1660. Thank you very much.